0: humans Mm. are comfort addicted. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of, you know, men that are in powerful positions, and we do live in a patriarchy. Oftentimes, it's not that they actively don't want us. They don't even know that they don't want us. It's just that they're really comfortable with the dudes that they're working with, right? Mm -hmm. And they're not necessarily looking out for inclusion.
1: Are you in a leadership role trying to figure out how to convince others to change their mind? Have you ever wondered why is leading and influencing others so darn hard? Are you looking for practical answers to these two vital questions? If so, welcome to my podcast, Closing the Gap with Denise Cooper. I'm your host, Denise Cooper, and I am a storyteller. I interview thought leaders and people just like you who are learning and practicing the art and expanding on the science of leadership. Listen, as my guests and I talk about what it takes to be a remarkable leader in the 21st century. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening to everyone. You know, I say it all the time because I send love, greetings, and I hope you're having a wonderful day. I am so thrilled. I have watched my next guest for several months now. We got introduced to a mutual friend. And you know how you have those folks on LinkedIn that you just kind of go back and forth, back and forth, watching each other and just kind of, oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. And then one day I got a brain uh, moment where I actually connected the dots and said, you know, I think we have a lot in common and it would be a wonderful conversation for our podcast. My guest today is Denise Conroy, and she likes to start everything out like this. So sit back a minute, close your eyes, and think about this. Imagine a world where women have the more active hand in running the show. Not on the sidelines, not on the periphery, but really more active in running the show. That's the world that she is trying to create in Thimi. It is her company. And it's named after the mythical female island in the DC comic Wonder Woman. The I think it is. And I'll let her tell you the rest of it. When she's not being Wonder Woman, she's a performance coach dedicated to a new approach to leading, one that puts humans, all of us, at the center rather than more of the same obtuse jargon that we fed for the last 50 years. She specializes in working with female founders and executives. Put simply, she says, she wants more fulfilled, diverse women in leadership positions. She thinks our world would be better off, and so do I. She teaches female founders how to run better businesses and have a life. She trains women executives how to blaze the path to the C-suite. So her interests are not just in one segment or another, but it really is teaching women the leadership skills necessary. And as I've told you before, the political smarts, politics is not a dirty word, It simply means how do we all get along and the culture and the taboos and the boundaries, all those things that make an organization work well. Many of her clients have set their sights on the CEO role. She helps them make that happen. She started her career as a research analyst and became a marketing executive. At one time, she was the youngest CMO in the media and entertainment industry eventually leading marketing for HGTV. After eight years at the top of her game in marketing, she decided, you know, like most of us, she wanted more. She left a toxic environment and pursued a distinct path to CEO along the way. And that's what I hope today we will do. She learned a lot. And now she offers what she's learned, all that wisdom, all that experience to help other women who are burned out bored, sick of toxic environments, find a path not to where they want to be, and primarily to be at the top of their game and in the C-suite world. So with that, good morning, Denise.
0: Good morning, Denise. It's, it's so nice to meet another Denise. I don't So <laughs> It's sort of where we were kindred right from the get-go.
1: Thank I'm you telling for you. me. Okay, so I just ripped up the name of your company and where it came from, so say it right. <laughs> company's name is Themi, which
0: is short for Themyscira, which you you you've so well articulated what a nerd I am and have always been. I've always been into comics. I'm a DC girl, not a Marvel girl. Sorry. This is I her. know.
1: I know. And the
0: <laughs> <laughs> My husband is a Marvel guy. He doesn't even want anything to do with me. So um, but Wonder Woman has always really fascinated me, largely because I was the daughter of one. And uh, my mother was a real life Wonder Woman. She was a founder. She was a woman who had everything in the world heaped on her shoulders and carried it with grace and aplomb. So that's the the sort of woman I came from.
1: Uh, You know, and I think, you know, all of us need a wonder woman in our life. I, I, you know, in my book, I talk about my mother, Miss Louise, um, Mm -hmm. and how as far as she was concerned, there was no failure. You were going to win. (laughs) And that was kind of it. Not that it created a lot of pressure because she was very good at kind of balancing the push with the pull, but she always said that, you know, there's a couple things you have to learn. One is, is that you ought to be able to tell somebody off, but it takes them 15 minutes after you left them to realize that they'd just been cussed out.
0: <laughs> I like that. We're back to politics. I like it. That's wonderful. I think Miss Louise and Miriam, my mom would have gotten along quite well because my mother was also very good about not making me feel the pressure of the yeah. standards um but but i still took it on i internalized it and um i don't know she was really good she was an artist so she was good about letting me be me you mm-hmm. know she, she didn't try to direct me in ways that she wanted me to go
1: she just sort of let me be who i was yeah yeah and that's a gift i think yeah. um you know to have that kind of foundation yes and to you know kind of grow up with a with a feeling that, you know, that no matter what you do, it's all going to work out. Yeah, It may, not, it, it may be a, a rough ride through, but in the end, it's going to be OK. That's right. So, you know, let's talk a little bit about your background. And how did you come to this point where you said enough is enough? We have to make better choices about um, being more inclusive and particularly women and C-suites. Um, I did a, a podcast for um, Leadership Global a while back, and one of the things I was just so angry about at the particular time is the World Forum came out with a study that said it would take 256 years before women reached equality. And I was like, you know, we can figure out how to get a vaccine in nine months, but we can't figure out how to put, you know, more equality in, more women in the in positions of you know, equality as well as what they've earned, because it's not like they're not earning that. And so I just got really pissed off. So the idea that you were a CEO and then just decided enough is enough is fascinating. Tell us about that. I think it's, you know,
0: as you would expect, I think a lot of women end up trying to not throw in the towel, but change the towel, right? Mm-hmm. And so we're in it, you know, I've, I've dedicated an entire career to being a change agent, which people either utter that, that phrase, like a mythical figure or a curse word, right. Or a, some sort of affliction, um, because change is scary. So I think for me, what, what really made me throw the towel in was the toxicity and, and frankly. I got tired of seeing the same faces. I got tired of walking into, I mean, I just turned 50 in December. I got tired of walking into a boardroom. Everybody's a guy. Everybody's white. Everybody's in their fifties or sixties. I'm still the youngest person still. And I'm still the only woman. And I just, I'm sorry. I think that's bullshit. And I think a lot of it has to do with comfort. Humans are comfort addicted. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of, you know, men that are in powerful positions and we do live in a patriarchy, oftentimes it's not that they actively don't want us. They don't even know that they don't want us. It's just that they're really comfortable with the dudes that they're working with. Right. Mm -hmm. And they're not necessarily looking out for inclusion.
1: That's an interesting perspective of it's not intentional. It's just we all as human beings crave comfort. Right. And that we do things that make us comfortable because, you know, we don't really like being uncomfortable. We don't really like growing. And to grow means you have to do something different, which means you break a habit. And then, you know, there we are. We're uncomfortable about it. So what have you learned on this journey?
0: You know, I think I've learned the difference makes us better. And I'll give you a really good example that was formative to me in, in my path to the C-suite. So I worked at my first job in television was working at a small independent television network. It was called The Outdoor Channel based in Southern California. And it was a family, family business. Uh, family had, you know, founded this network that was all about hunting, fishing and shooting sports. Interestingly enough, I grew up in West Virginia We were (laughs) some of the sole liberals in in the hood, in in our area. Uh, My father had actually been to Vietnam. Uh, He did two tours. And he came home the most liberal guy you can imagine. He He went into the service being leery of everybody. He grew up in a really poor neighborhood on the north side of Pittsburgh, saw a lot of different types of folks who did not look like him as his enemy, then he goes over to Vietnam and he's like, uh, yeah, we're all in the same boat together. I'm not better than them. I'm not. So he, he forged some lifelong friendships with folks who were black, who were Hispanic, who, you know, he never would have become friends with had he not been forced out of his comfort zone. Right. Mm-hmm. You got mm-hmm. sleep in a barracks with these folks. You gotta, you know, you get to know them and he, he grew to love them. So I think that I grew up in this very liberal family. And so I go to interview at the outdoor channel and the outdoor channel is Everything my family was not. I'm a lifelong Mm. Democrat. I'm I'm pretty moderate, but I'm still lifelong Dem. Everybody that works at this network is a Republican. Everybody's really into guns. We never owned a gun growing up. We're some of the few in my state that just didn't. And so, amazingly enough, I worked there for almost eight years. Mm -hmm. It was the best eight years of my career, some of the best. Mm. And that sounds weird. It's not that I didn't butt heads with some of these people. It's not like sometimes they wouldn't say things that would make me go, you know, but Nonetheless, I learned about the other side. And we've got this thing right now where, whether it's in politics, whether it's in the workplace, you know, in diversity, we don't learn from different voices. Mm -hmm. And having, you know, moved on, become a CEO, I am amazed at how diversity makes us all step up. So it brings perspectives that like, so for example, I had a CFO that I, you know, hired at my first CEO job. He's from India perspective, totally different. Now he and I share the same value system, which I think is really important. We don't approach things the same at all. Mm-hmm. And so he brought so much to the table that I never would have brought to the table, or maybe, you know, another white guy wouldn't have brought to the table. So I think for me, diversity is good business. Yes. Does it make me feel good? It does because there's justice to it. But first and foremost, I think a lot of people, the justice argument ain't going to cut it. Right. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. there's more money in diversity because there's more innovation.
1: Yeah. So, you know, your experiences, both from your parents and being a CEO in the process here has given you a first, first bird's eye view of kind of seeing how the power of diversity can actually improve the bottom line, which, you know, everybody still debates, which I, you know, I have a T-shirt that says, I don't understand why we're still debating racism in any way. So what do you say that would help convince somebody else who's in that kind of cloistered bubble of comfort? That would even move them. Because I think one of the things that we've seen over history is, you know, we get on this thing, there's a, a fight towards justice, there's a fight towards equality, there's a, ch- a fight to kind of dismantle where we are, and then we get tired. And right now, you know, there's this rumbling of, I'm just tired. I heard a term last year about, you know, we're, we're fatigued. And I'm just wondering... Now that we're approaching that point where, you know, we're going to take our foot off the gas, what can we say or do that's going to make a difference?
0: I think the first thing I always like to emphasize is that I'm looking for equality. I'm looking to mm-hmm. approach equality. And I completely realize we're not going to get there immediately, but I want to move towards it. So if we just start with numbers and statistics, because I did start my my career as an analyst, and you know I'm a, I'm a big data geek, and I think that if you look at population, let's start with women right off the bat, right? We've got 51% of the population in the United States, and I believe we have, depending on what stats you look at, six to eight percent of the Fortune 1,000 companies, Fortune 500, Fortune 1,000. When you expand that. And look at those private equity backed, you know, or pure private enterprise. that's not going to be captured in the Fortune 500 or 1,000 necessarily. You, I've seen stats that range anywhere from two percent to three percent of CEO roles. I have a problem with that. I have a problem with that. There, there's nothing like equality there. We're not, we're not even approaching it. We're not trying, and that pisses me off. Because here's the thing: we buy everything. We buy, you know, for our households, we buy everything with the exception of, you know, oftentimes a man will buy the car and that's changing. Let's be fair. Yeah. Um, I buy my own cars now. You know, yeah. I have mortgage. I have credit cards, stuff that let's be fair. Those are those are relatively new developments in the modern era for women. So I think that from my perspective, we're the ones who are driving the economy, yet we get a couple percentage points when we have 51%. No, the voice is disproportionate. No. then then you start to look at people of color, right? And you look at how they're reflected in the population. If you put everybody together, we've got like almost 30% of people of color in the United States. And then you can get onto the nuances of, I think blacks are at around almost 20%, somewhere in that 17, 18%. You've got a big Hispanic population that continues to grow and will continue to grow. They need more voice. That's all I'm looking for is more voice. I'm not looking, and, and you hear from a lot of white men, quite frankly, you're looking to replace you know you're, you're looking to replace us. I'm not looking to replace you and I'm not looking to replace you with people who are inferior mm-hmm. and that's that's another piece of the argument that 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 side's got to get over and we've got to get them to overcome it. There are plenty of qualified women ready to lead. There are plenty of qualified black people, Hispanic people, Asian people ready to lead. so there's there's no there's no talent shortage here. The other piece is, and, and they're not mediocre, they're stellar, right? So I, I think, and I think there needs to be a recognition and we know it, you and I know it, but I think a lot of times some men, not all, but some will would say, oh, well, everything's great now. You know, everything, you know everything's great, corporations are at you know, record valuation, stock market's doing great. I'll be honest with you, and I have this conversation a lot with people who know me, I think the stock market's undervalued. And I think the stock market is actually undervalued because not everybody's playing, right? Mm-hmm. Not everybody's getting a seat in the table in leadership. Not everybody is, you know, getting that wealth so they can invest. So I think that, you know, in a world with more representation, mm-hmm. we all make more money. Mm-hmm. Again, rising tide lifts all boats. The other thing I'd say is we we have to, the first place people go when you talk about diversity is quotas. Oh, I'm not in favor of a quota. Quota, it's funny. I read a book years ago by a man who did a lot of the spinning for the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. And this was like literally back in the and early And
1: spinning is, is kind of making the positive out of everything.
0: Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. He was their talking point guy. And he wrote a book called Words That Work. And I, I love the book, honestly, because, I mean, it was during the heyday of the Republicans, like it or not, they were really, really good at crafting a message and getting it out there. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think there's something to be learned from that. Mm-hmm. So I think we don't use the word quotas. I think I like the word benchmarks better. Mm. Right. So what's my and, and simply let's look at the population. OK, 51 percent female. That's my benchmark for women. OK, people of color. 30 percent. That's my benchmark. Am I going to hit it on the nose? Maybe not, but at least I can try.
1: And it's directionally right.
0: It's directionally correct. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, that's a, that's interesting, because I think on my side, what I hear all the time is, is, well, we don't know where to find them. I mean, we put our stuff in the ads and all of this other good stuff trying to advertise for them to come and apply for these jobs. And they just don't apply for these jobs. And so one of the things that I told people when I was working with folks who were trying to do their careers is 70 to 80% of jobs are, are never advertised. And it's always who you know. You pick up the phone, you call Bud, Bud and say, hey, who do you know? And suddenly Bud's got Jed and Jed. <laughs> so if you're not in those circles, you just don't get thought about out of this. Yeah. And it's really uncomfortable for people to go to different circles, to be in circles where they wouldn't normally talk, you know, do. How do we change this balance of, and I get it. I mean, I'm not, I don't want anybody to think that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm tossing grenades at something like this. This yeah. is just how we work. We, we want to be with people who we're comfortable with. That's a normal human feeling, right? But the only way you get to be comfortable with people is you have to be exposed. So how, do, how does this, you know, play out? Because I, I think it is that one factor. It, it certainly has to be, you know, kind of the big push of the way jobs are filled, particularly at the C-suite director, VP level, is really through the network. Yeah, it is. How do we change that?
0: I think you have to force people, and I'll use that word lightly, when you have a seat at the table, mm-hmm. you have to force people to do things that they're uncomfortable with. That is the burden of leadership,
1: Mm -hmm. right?
0: Blessing of leadership as well. And I think that I'll give an example here. You know, I've I've been on some corporate boards and I was on a corporate board once where all all male team, all white, and it was a female business, a very female business. Clearly, I was the only person that was struck as odd because I'm the only female on that board, right? At the time. And nobody of color is on the board, and I, I remember thinking, gosh, this is really weird that this whole executive team is white and is male. And when they went to hire for two key executive roles that the board was approving, first thing that the CEO said is, I'm going to go, you know, I'll put some some feelers out to my network. And I was like, oh, hold up. I was like, I want to see women in these roles because you don't have any. And I want to see at least one of them as a person of color. And that's the burden of leadership. That's what we have got to do. And, and trust me, as this comes up over and over and over again, I'm going to be like a broken record, which is annoying. Like, right? I mean, I, I <laughs> know that I am the annoying voice in the room, but that said, come on, like, come on. Because I think about it. I'm back to innovation again. I think about all the innovations that you're missing because you don't have a person of color or at least at least one, if not multiples, right? So you don't have, you're not hitting that demo, you're not hitting the female demo. The, the example I like to use a lot is the cosmetics industry. So if you mm-hmm. think about back in the day, I'm in, I'm in high school, right? Mm-hmm. I've got crazy fair skin. And there were three foundation shades. There was light, medium, dark. And I guarantee the light was never light enough for me. The dark was probably never dark enough for you. And someone came along and I guarantee this was not a dude. I'm sorry, but I think that this was a woman, several women who thought out of the box who were different and said, huh, what if we made foundations in a billion different shades? Because there are a billion different shades of skin tone. That's innovation. That's what we're missing, right? You can think the same when I think through cosmetics and personal care about our hair types and all these, all these other things, right? There mm-hmm. is pent up demand in those markets and we're not mm-hmm. hitting it. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And, and even down to, you know, you know, you're talking about what somebody might say is a traditionally feminine um, yeah. industry. But if you look at automobiles, oh you know, I'm five God. foot two, kind of small in stature and whatnot. And mm-hmm. it is always hard to find a car. That absolutely fits, and and most of the time I have to have a pillow so that I can sit up high enough to see over it because it's built for a guy. Yeah. You know, and it's it's just, and I have to make those decisions around how to buy a car. I'm like you, you know, I have to buy a house, I have to buy a car, to buy everything in it, chairs, the whole thing. And yet, it always amazes me how hard it is for me to figure out how to do this. I mean, what is it, uh, you know, fashion industry? We're just now looking at plus sizes. How much money were we losing because, you know, that kind of thing? I want to go back to two things that you said. One is you sat on a couple boards, and I'm sure that there are people who are listening to this who want to know, what's the secret to getting on boards? Because now I'm seeing organizations that train women to get on boards. And I find that interesting because I suppose it's enough, but there's so many women they may not be in those Fortune 1000 companies yet, but they own, a, they own their own business and they are CEOs of their business. And they may not be, you know, billion dollar businesses, but you know what? There's some pretty solid $1 million, $2 million, $10 million businesses that women own. And yet I'm, I'm not sure that they're getting tapped to sit on a board. How does that, I mean, is it, um, other than being in the club where they know you, How does that happen? And I'm particularly interested because you said you were the annoying voice in the room. Mm -hmm. So that's a combination that most of us would go, oh, no, we have to be nice. I'm used to being (laughs) (laughs) comfortable with it. Strong women with female voices. Mm -hmm. So these are all stereotypes that kind of are out there and you you smashed them, right? (laughs) So, Mm So how do you get on the boards and how is it that You know, the annoying voice in the room has the power to set direction. So the first
0: question I'll tackle, how do you get on boards? It is who you know. And it's interesting. I have only been on, you know, really smaller boards. So the way that I got onto one of the boards that I'm on currently is I ran an investment for a private equity group. They have other investments. They liked what I did on the the first investment as CEO. And they were like, Hey, we could use, I remember specifically, they're like, we could use a marketing voice in the room because marketing was really before I became CEO, how I, how I built my, my career. So that, that became, I think it's a combo of who, you know, and it's your functional specialty. Mm-hmm. I will tell you there are a million services, whether they, there's women in the boardroom. I, I subscribed to that for about a year. It wasn't great for me. And, and I'll tell you why, not because the aims of it aren't great. They did have a lot of leads for board roles. They were all in the pharmaceutical or biotech industry or finance. And they really wanted, for everyone that came across my desk, they wanted a very specific list and they wanted you to be an industry specialist. And that's not me. Like, those aren't my industries. So that that really didn't work out for me. I think it might work out quite well if you're someone who has that background. I think, though, it really is about who you know. I hate to say that, but there... It, and I also, I take... I take offense. And and I think that there are a lot of programs out there that want to do a good thing. They want to train women to be on boards. Let me be Mm -hmm. really clear. Nobody trains men to be on boards. Mm. And I don't think we need any extra education. I mean, I I saw a stat the other day. Chief put it out. There are five million women who are in the C-suite right now. So that's five million brains that the boards of, of the United States can tap into. I guarantee most of those women that are in that 5 million are functional specialists, right? You mm-hmm. would be at that level. Mm-hmm. 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 I don't need to go to any more school. I don't need to, you know, learn Robert's rules. I don't need to. Most of us know that. I don't need that. You know, I, I think it really is more about cracking the network. It's really more about, you know, how do you get in? Who do you know? And and that's one of the things that I've taken on with my business is advisory to be able to make introductions, especially in the private equity world for their boards among sort of my network of folks that I'm coaching.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's very interesting. So now the annoying voice in the room. And I love the fact that you're actually in, you know, because when we think about the number of businesses, I always found it very interesting that we only talk about the top ones. When, you know, the top pick your number, you know, 250, 500, you know, and yes, I get they have great market cap. And when they go up and down, it does swing kind of the, the financial um, way where we're all for everybody out of this. But the, the engine of business is really in the, you know, the next group of businesses, you know, you know, number 500,000. Exactly. <laughs> is in there. And in some subset of them, and, and private equity is hugely important. Um, And it's one of the reasons why a lot of women businesses, minority businesses in particular, don't get to the next level is because they can't get equity, Absolutely. um, diluted equity that's going to help them grow their business. But the network, those who are in the network get that equity yeah. and that opportunity out of it. But I find it interesting that you're on that kind of midsize where that is probably the place that if we're going to crack this, that's the place to crack it. Absolutely. That is take an annoying voice here. Cause I mean, I really am, I I know I'm harping on this, but I can't tell you how many times, particularly as a black woman, um, woman, they, you know, I've been told you're a little too powerful or, you know, you've got resting the face, you know, (laughs) those kinds of things. And most of the time I'm just thinking. (laughs) <laughs> and being, taking it. right I'm just thinking I'm trying to go okay you just said this I'm trying to figure out how that is you know and get this language thing going in my brain here how do you make people comfortable with that I mean I don't know that there's a secret sauce but what's your style because you obviously are very comfortable and you can speak up
0: yeah I mean I have a really odd confidence that I have to give to my parents. I have to give them all the credit for. So my father being this toxically masculine guy intentionally raised this feminist. Like I was not allowed to play with dolls. I was not allowed to, but he didn't want me doing anything that was going to keep me at home under some guy's thumb. And I'm not saying like now as an adult, I'm like, well, some people that. That's nice. You know, they want to be at home with their children. And my, Chuck was, my dad was having none of that. He was uh-huh. training me for bigger things. Uh-huh. And I think that for me in that, you know, coming from that, I've always been very comfortable around men. I'm the only girl in my family other than my mom. I used to hang out around him and his toxic friends. And so I'm very comfortable in a room where I am the only woman. I'm not saying it's right. I'm saying I'm just comfortable and I can be in my skin. I think that hard things need to be done first. And that's mm-hmm. always been my sort of my approach. And I think anybody who wants to work with me, including the guys who put me on this board, they know who I am. Like there's no hiding. I worked for them for almost five years and they, they either get that and they dig that or they don't. And these guys, I'm very fortunate they do. I still see I'm good enough to read a room though. And when I bring some of these things up, I can, I'm looking at the room and I'm like, oh, he thinks this is a crock. This guy thinks it's a crock. When I'm always trying to, you know, push the diversity issue, I go back to profits, I go back to, you know, in in some businesses I've been in, the black demographic, for example, is hugely influential. And mm-hmm. you just have to keep reminding them of the mm-hmm. market dynamics. And I find that I'm not saying it solves everything. I'm not saying it makes me less annoying. I'm still sure that quite sure that in that room, there are folks who think I'm woke, right? I can see the, the look on their face. Um, and I really don't care. I, I just, you know, I want more.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to turn to, to a couple other things that we talked about when we first met kind of in this. One of the things that you that got my attention was, you know, this kind of how we hire people. And we talked a little bit about, you know, it's 2022 and potential employees are still getting ghosted in the hiring process. Yeah. And, and I know that it's 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 interesting because in my experience being in HR, it's the one function that most executives, and I'm not even talking about the CEO, to name an exec, has absolutely no insight into how potential employees are being treated by search firms, by anybody. And this idea of being ghosted, I had one woman I was working with in the first year, she was ghosted 22 times. So imagine how she's feeling and we wonder why you know they're not confident. And, and I'm just saying there's a woman they got ghosted, but I've worked with men Oh, and yeah. they've gotten ghosted, too. It's it's part of this ubiquitous process that people go through now. And, and we don't really talk about it, but you did. Yeah. What is it that allows a person or how, I mean, how does this like happen? And what can you do? Because the person who's hired, who's being hired is in the one down position. Let's face it. Yeah, they have to be nice because they, you know, if they piss off the person who's ushering them into the company, they ain't getting there. That's right. So it's tell it's me your thoughts on this.
0: Yeah, I um, I think that the the typical hiring process is also in so much need of a makeover. I'm still I'm still struggling with the fact that we introduce ourselves with a piece of paper, the resume, the CV that just reminds me of something that maybe Bob Cratchit gave to Mister Scrooge back in the day, right? <laughs> Here's my credentials, sir. So, you know, like I I just with all the tech that we have that's robust that can show more the measure of a person, right? That just to me it just seems silly. There, we should be doing better there. But then when you compound that, a lot of the systems we have, definitely the hiring system, it's a it's a it's one of raging narcissism. Let me explain. So I don't necessarily think, I, I'd written an article about this recently. I interviewed for the, the head of a position at a, a big training organization, nonprofit, but big, well-respected. I was interviewing for the CEO role, top of the top, was told I was one of six final candidates and I got ghosted. And I was... Beside myself, because mm. to be honest, as a as a CEO, I've never been ghosted before. Mm-hmm. Usually, you know, people don't want to burn bridges. I don't like to burn bridges. People don't like to burn bridges either. But I do think we're in a world of where people only deal with what's in front of their face. Mm. So I think that all kinds of things were happening at the organization where I was interviewing. You know, there were other priorities, there were political dynamics where other candidates were pushed higher up on the list. And frankly, um, I, I think that I got lost in the process. A lot of times, I don't think there's avarice in it. I really don't. I don't think they think about you. So the woman who got you know ghosted 22 times, those people are just thoughtless and don't think about you. I think the way that we fix it, and it's interesting. I never used to lean in on this as a CEO. Mm-hmm. I I have no idea, to be honest with you, how people were being treated. You know, for example, you know when I was a CEO at Iconic Group or any of the other companies I was a CEO at. I now have a vested interest. I think when it happens to you, you're like, I want to lean in on this. You know, I want to know tooth to tail, how are we treating people? And what's this process look like? Because let's be fair. I mean, I'll go back to marketing. It's marketing. It's branding. Because in the instance of me and this particular training organization, I had been through training with them and I Mm -hmm. really thought highly of them. I would never train with them again. I would Mm -hmm. never send a... so, So they not only lost a candidate, you lose a client too. Or a customer.
1: Yeah, I think so. And that's the one piece that I, I think people miss out of it. Because I mean, people have a really bad, particularly by the post that you made, there were so many comments about how many and I'm talking thousands, folks, not just, you know, 10 yeah. Yeah. of people who said, I've been ghosted. This is how they treated me, how I how, this bad taste they left in their mouth about what it was, and then how rude it, it just feels. And, and what do you do about it? The other thing I want to touch on is that you wrote an article for Medium, which I, I just loved about, you know, it's time to move on from the pandemic. Yes. We're starting, you know, now the mandates are coming down. We we learned, it. I found it interesting because I've run my business for, you know, 15, 16 years now. It's always been virtual. So this hair on fire, we got to get virtual, we got to get virtual. And we never thought about it when technology has been around granted, it was clunky in the early years that I did it, but it got better and better. And it got tremendously better because of the pandemic out of this. But we're still struggling with that. Why do you think we've been so slow to capitalize on the opportunities that technology and changing the way we work um, in particular, wh- why why is it taking us so long? What's that about?
0: So I think there are three reasons for it. One is Control. So as you look at the sort of the raging dialogue around work from home versus return to office, you have certain industries who are wedded. They are like, you are coming back. Finance was one of them, quite frankly, until the backlash happened. And you know the folks in finance sort of revolted and said, eh, I don't think I want to. I've been working from my house pretty well. Things are going well for me. But there is a massive amount of control. And this goes back for me Once again, you know, this is a patriarchal system. You have a certain type of guy who runs, I mean, look at Wall Street, right? Especially, you have a certain type of guy who's running not only a business, but an industry. And at the end of the day, their power, and this is that old leadership paradigm versus what I'm trying to move towards, their power derives from a title and a giant salary, right? Mm -hmm. Do what I say because I said it. Not because there's no reason, there's no dialogue, there's, there's none of that, right? It's that old industrial revolution orientation. So that's number one is control. The other piece is innovation. We talked about it. You still don't have enough wide-ranging voices at the table. And when you're dealing with a challenge like the pandemic, like the supply right. chain, you need the best brains in the room. And I got to be honest with you, I don't care if they're actually in the room. Virtual is fine. I just need your brain. Right. I don't really need you know, your your physical presence. And then the second piece is, I need your best ideas.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I think the last piece is, there are not a lot of visionaries in business. And that is, a i i recognize a very broad generalization, but I stand by it. Mm-hmm. Because business tends to really favor cost controllers. So mm. for many, many years leading up to the, pan- the the pandemic, especially if you're a public company, right, you are predicated on your quarterly earnings, on your quarterly results, your, your existence and your relevance. And frankly, as a CEO, you know, and as a leader at a company like that you know, you're going to do whatever it takes to hit the target every quarter. And a lot of that has been less about innovation over these you know last several decades. And it's been more about cost control. I always laugh at it because I like to say, I think cost control is a tactic. It's not a strategy, but unfortunately mm-hmm. most of American business has been running it as a strategy. It's a tactic. Mm-hmm. So then you dump the pandemic on them and all they know is cost control. And let's be fair, the the answer to a lot of these pandemic issues is spending. That's certainly going to be the answer to how do you get better talent to stay and be sticky, mm-hmm.
1: right and mm-hmm. engaged.
0: How do you change your supply chain when some of the sources that you had are no longer sources anymore? You're going to have to spend some money. You might have to radically change your infrastructure. That's a real step change.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. Well, we've come to the end. I, I you know we have touched on so many different topics, and I so appreciate your ability to just kind of flex and roll with me on this.
0: (laughs) My dream. I love eccentric. (laughs) Where can people find you? Uh, You can find me on LinkedIn, super active on LinkedIn, Denise Conroy. And you can also find me at my website, femmy, T-H-E-M-Y-L-L-C.com. And also want to mention, I have a book coming out at the end of the year called Spinning Brightly, which is my memoir. And it's about sort of my my journey
1: to the C-suite. Oh, and that's gonna be that's gonna be a killer. Get it in for Christmas, guys. <laughs> Get it in for Christmas. So, for all folks out there, please, if you really like it and you want to hear more of this, don't forget to hit that follow button from wherever you're listening to this. And once again, it's a wrap. See ya. That's a wrap. And I'm Denise Cooper, and you've been listening to Closing the Gap with Denise Cooper. Let me thank my good friend, Ivan G. Hall, for the background music. I'd like to ask you to do three things. One, if you liked it, share it with your friends. Let's build up our community. Two, subscribe so that you don't miss when a new episode drops. And lastly, if you've got a question or a comment, leave it below. I'd love to hear what you thought was good, what I could do better, and what topics you'd like to hear about. Let me thank my guests one more last time, Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Bye.